In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory, Glory be, be to the, the Father, and to the Son, and to the, the Holy Spirit, Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. This week we receive another reading from 1 Timothy, this time from chapter 2. And it is a continuation of where we left off last week. And Paul is talking to Timothy about living the Christian life in a world that lives differently than the way Christians would live. So when your Christian values come into conflict with the cultural values of the place where you live, what do you do with that? How do you handle that? And how do you react against the challenges that you would find in a congregation when people are trying to be faithful but are also very heavenly, heavily influenced by the congregation around them? Or the, not the congregation around them, but the culture and context around them. And so these are the issues that Paul is going to take up for Timothy uh, this week. And we begin by hearing uh, that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the total reading goes 1 through 15. But we're going to start with just the seven verses, if you would please, Paul. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Thank you. So Paul opens this by giving the church direction to engage in four activities. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now these are all four different aspects of prayer. And so the first one, supplication, is a direct request for God to act on behalf of all. And this would be the opening petition that we hear on a Sunday morning that deals with the theme of the service, and it speaks generally about God interacting with creation. You're talking about the collect of the day. Uh, not the collect of the day, but the open, the, in the prayers, there's a series of petitions. In the prayers and, of the church? In the prayers of the church. Okay. And that first one deals very broadly. Heavenly Father, you are the creator of all things. We ask that you would... Uh, protect and sustain the life that lives here on this earth, so on and so forth. And it deals very broadly with all of creation. And then out of that flows um, other things that we would pray about on a Sunday morning, including uh, we go from the general broad prayer for creation to specifically the church and her pastors. Then we go to ruling authorities and civil servants, and then we go to more specific petitions dealing with things like good weather, travel, and the like, and then we end with prayers for the sick and suffering. Is, is the reason for that patterning based on this passage, perhaps, or is it just a tradition that evolved in the church and, and 
re reinforced by this, and everybody thought, yeah, that's a good way to organize prayers. Well, I'm sure that the this passage and other passages like it informed the tradition that we've inherited, um, but it is based more on tradition than it is on this particular passage. I would not look at this and say, the reason we pray the way we do on Sunday morning is because of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. But it certainly has shaped how those prayers are spoken. And we'll actually see that here in just a minute when we talk about praying for kings and the tradition that has evolved around that. But um, in these four, we tend to think about prayers just including all of these things. But Paul really wisely says that in our prayers, we need to consider all of these different aspects, that we're praying in general for all of creation. And then there's, he says, so you have supplication and prayers, which would be broader conversations with God, including intercessions and thanksgiving. And then you have intercessions, which would be specific prayers on behalf of specific people. Please help my neighbor Joe, who's getting ready for surgery, who um, please be with... Um, Linda and Tim as they're getting ready to travel and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Your friends say, can you just keep me in your prayers? Uh, we note these in the yellow sheet as the, the people who are listed in prayer, uh, both our members, our shut-ins, and then also that longer list of those affiliated with the congregation uh, or people who know uh, others who are members of this congregation. Those would be intercessions. And then Thanksgiving, which is recognition for all that God has done. And so, He's saying we also need to be thankful. Thank you for this daily bread, all of these sorts of things that you have provided for me. And it reminds us to acknowledge that God has answered that opening supplication, which was the general sustaining of creation in these specific ways that we have seen in our life. And for that, we are thankful. And so what I think is interesting about this, though, because... I don't often think about my prayers and trying to categorize them and saying, what kind of prayer was this today? I just generally pray, but Paul is encouraging us to consider that so we can make sure that we are covering the broad spectrum of topics in our prayers each and every day. The, the kind of formulaic prayers that we have in this service, the collect at the beginning and the collects often at the end, a lot of them have these these same elements to them and there's a whole uh, there's a whole collection in the hymnal if you've never explored that of of, of those types of prayers for different occasions and i think a lot right. of them do encompass all these different notions there's there's both petitions for things and thanksgiving and 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 uh, they're all wrapped into one very concisely written prayer well and even the lord's prayer you could argue contains True. all of these different things our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name it's a direct request for God to act on behalf of all. Um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That would be that broader acting on behalf of things. Um, then we get the inter specific intercessions and thanksgiving. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Those would be specific intercessions, specific prayers about specific things. And there's even thanksgiving in this. Um, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. This is an act of praise of thanksgiving that all this belongs to God. Which is the doxology that we've appended to the Lord's right. Prayer because where you find it in Scripture, that, that, is, that doxology is not, not right. appended to it. Uh, I think we take it for granted. Oh, yeah, it must be there too. Right, but it's but not. It's not. <laughs> um, and 
if you're ever in a service that has a mixed gathering of Roman Catholics and Protestants, you're reminded of that because Roman Catholics do not include that appended doxology that is spoken by the priest as part of the liturgy. Um, and so one of the adjustments that was made in the Reformation was that doxology was taken out of the liturgy spoken by the priest and given to the liturgy spoken by the people. And so as he's laying this all out, here are the things for which we should be praying. He then tells us, for whom should we pray? We should pray for everyone. For everyone. And he specifically includes one group kings and all who are in high, high positions. I was reading a devotion on this, and, and the author said, so this is the verse that uh, three years ago made the Democrats uncomfortable because they had to pray for President Trump, and this year it's the verse that will make the Republicans uncomfortable because they have to pray for President Biden. Uh, the reminder that it doesn't matter who's in power, we pray for them. And we pray for them because... Well, first of all, we should. They are our neighbor, and we should want God to bless them because that would be what we are uh, hoping to have through that, but also because it's in our own vested interest that they would rule in such a way that we would be able to lead a peaceable life. Uh, and that we see Paul talk about elsewhere, that if nothing else, you pray that your ruler would allow you to live a peaceable life within the uh, community in which you are placed. Yeah, what is Luther's quote about that, that he would rather have a, a, a Turk that was a good governor than, than somebody who was, was incompetent? Or, right. I, I don't remember the exact quote. Well, it's, it's likely an apocryphal quote, I think. Oh, is it? Okay. Um, but the, what is often attributed to him is, I would rather have a Turk as a good ruler than uh, a good Christian who is not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there is truth to that. Um, sometimes we get caught up in... Um, the people that I need to interact with need to be Christian. And I get this a lot with counseling. People will come and say to me, can you recommend a Christian counselor? And I will say to them, well, when you're looking for a counselor, the first thing you should do is make sure that your insurance pays for it so that you can get the number of sessions you need. And then second, you look for one who's a good fit. It may include that they are overtly Christian in the sense that they pray with you at the end of your session or things of that nature. But the reality is many good counselors do not advertise as Christian counselors because they want to make sure that their practice is broad and they can help a broad number of people. And on the flip side of that, just because they advertise as a Christian counselor does not mean that they're going to be a good counselor. And you could apply the same thing to say a physician. Right. Um, if, you, if you say, I only want to be treated by Christian physicians, you may not get the best doctor for your case. Right, right. So you go for the one that can be of best service to you because God is working through all of these means in order to care for his people. But when we pray for kings and those who are in high, high positions, there's an interesting way that this is approached by the church. And um, historically, kings and emperors are prayed for by their first name, or they are prayed for only by their position. And the reason for that, and we can see this switch happen when Constantine converts to Christianity in 315, I think is when he converts. 
roughly in that time frame. Prior to that, Christians always prayed for our emperor. After that, they prayed for Constantine, our emperor. Was, was that because you had then the, the fusion of the, the government and the, and the church together? No, it was because they mentioned his name because he was now a Christian. In the same way that you would pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ by name, because God knows them because of their baptism, you mention their name and not their office. And so from that point forward, the church has adopted this custom of praying for Christian rulers by their first name and non-Christian rulers by the title of their office. And the idea behind that is you are using their baptized name because before God, they are not your ruler. They are his baptized child. And in the service itself, they do not have an office that gives them authority over others because they are equal with you before the cross. And so the idea being that if your emperor came to church with you, he is no longer your emperor when he enters in the church doors. He is your brother or he is your brother or sister in Christ. And there's that equalization that happens. Now, this can get a bit tricky because some sometimes it can lead to some uncomfortable um, confessions. Here, our practice is that we simply pray for the office regardless of who's holding it. So we don't ever use uh, an individual's first name. Uh, the congregation through the Board of Elders several years ago adopted the practice that we would simply pray for the office as opposed to trying to say, here's the individual's first name. Well, there is some safety in that, in that you don't know the confession of the person that, that's holding that office. Right. Because as you said, to be consistent with that earlier practice, you're praying for a Christian ruler. Right. Well, and you would all you could do is take the public confession of the person who's in office. You wouldn't you you would run in very dangerous waters of saying, "Well, I don't believe that they're really a Christian." Well, they say that they are. Well, right. no, I don't think that they really are. That's not our place to judge. Uh, but what's interesting in that is the closest we would have come to running a follow of this would have been um, in the election cycle where. Senator Romney was running for president. Because he is not a member of the Christian church, he's a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is a non-Christian organization, we would have prayed for him by office, and our governor at the time, we would have prayed for by his first name because he professed Christianity, and Senator Romney very clearly did not. And so the prayer at that time would have been, we pray for our president and then Scott, our governor. And so you would have had this weird thing there. And because of the nature of politics, all kinds of things could have been read into that that just would have been very unhelpful. Uh, there are some churches that, that go that route, though. Oh, uh, some, of our, some of our sister churches. And, oh, absolutely. And they, and they go both directions. And they do. And they do. And so this is... One of those areas where um, we would say local custom dictates what is happening over the broader tradition that's happening because the, the tradition is there, it's helpful, it's insightful, but it does not have to determine the actual practice. Um, 
now you do get so you get some minor latitude for local custom to adjust what's happening in the tradition so local custom can't say we're just not going to offer prayers because it's a waste of time and we want to cut out something out of the service can't make that an, a local custom argument but you can say within the prayers we're going to structure this them this way or handle it in this way because this is important for our context and this is what we've decided to do as a community so continuing on we end or we move into another conversation that can lead to some uncomfortable cultural conversations and so would you read for us first timothy chapter 2 verses 8 through 15. these, these two halves of this epistle are just strikingly different themes i just was very surprised that they were included as, as as one epistle well they they strike us as different themes because of the context in which you live i don't think in the roman times they would have been that that starkly different and i'll explain why on the okay. other side of the reading. okay okay beginning beginning at verse eight i desire then that at every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Thank you. So what holds these two things together? What holds them together is they both run contrary to what our culture would say should be happening or would be the expected behavior of people who are dealing with these two topics. The same is true today, just as it was at the time that Paul was writing this. Sometimes we think, oh, we are so far removed from when Paul is writing that what he is saying may or may not have much bearing on what we are doing. But the reality is he is culturally facing many of the same challenges we are still dealing with today. And, and people really haven't changed oh, no, we, we like don't. to think we're smarter now but but people have not changed i mentioned this in bible study yesterday when we think about how we have evolved the reality is we haven't because sin hasn't um satan is lazy by his nature he is lazy because laziness is, is sinfulness and so he would embrace that which means he's not going out creating new ways for us to sin he has his playbook in place and he just keeps recycling the same old stuff that keeps on working because he knows that our sinful nature is going to fall for it time and time and time again and sure the means by which those things are carried out may have changed but ultimately the sin is still the same so sexual uh, sins they're the same today as they were at the time of paul the same temptations are there is it easier to engage in some sexual sins now than it was at the time of Paul sure but it was also easier to engage in some sins at the time of Paul than it is to engage in them now and what's at the core of that though is the sin remains the same so what's happening here what holds these two themes together is 
you're doing something unexpected by the culture, culture around you. So at the time of Paul, the national religion was the cult of the emperor. It was expected that every person would make a sacrifice at the local temple to recognize the authority of the emperor. And Rome would tolerate some other religions as long as once a year you made your annual sacrifice in honor of the, the emperor at the local temple to the Roman gods. Christians came along and said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. And that caused a lot of problems because are they true Roman citizens or are they not? Are they trying to lead a rebellion against the emperor? Are they rejecting the emperor? How do you sort this out? It was a counterculture move that put many of them in danger because they were refusing to follow the law to make a sacrifice before the emperor. And some would say, well, just put a pinch of incense on and walk away. Hold your nose and walk away. Just go along to get along. And the Christians said, no, even a pinch of incense is too much because it's the worship of the false god. But guess what we're still going to do? We're still going to pray for him. We're just not going to pray to him. Now, this is a radically different way of doing, of going about things. Because if you're, going to, if you're trying to be a revolutionary who's overthrowing the Roman emperor, and your first step is to not pay homage to him in the temple, the last thing you're going to do is pray for his well-being, security, and longevity. So what do you do with that? It, it doesn't fit. We can look at that today as well. We can look at how we're supposed to, according to culture, inter interact within political parties. And the idea that you would pray for the other party regardless of who's elected, well, that boggles minds. A great example of that was several years ago when President Trump and uh, Senator Clinton were engaging in their election the decision was made that regardless of who won, we were going to have on the sign the next day, please, we pray for President Obama and our, we pray for our president and president-elect. And it wasn't going to designate names. And it didn't, didn't designate names for this reason. We preloaded that into the sign two weeks in advance so that if somebody accused us of taking sides in the political debate, we could say, no, that was in there long before the winner of the election was ever announced. And sure enough, we did get phone calls questioning why are we having that on the same sign that we should pray for the president-elect? Well, because regardless of who got elected, we should pray for them. It was a countercultural move that foiled expectations of the way that we should behave. Now, with what Paul is writing here about women and the role of women in the congregation, the same sort of thing is happening. It's important to understand what's going on in the Roman context. In Roman times, there was the development of what was called the New Roman Woman. And the New Roman Woman was primarily upper-class women, but middle-class and lower-class women adopted some of these things as well, who would take on what Rome had often held as cultural expectations for men, which included a lot of sexual liberty. And so the new Roman woman would dress in very provocative ways. 
she would flaunt herself and make herself available sexually to whoever um, she wanted. And it led to a lot more sexual promiscuity. And it took what was the worst part of men and now held that up as the ideal for women. And so when Paul is writing to the women in, in Ephesus, he's talking to them about don't live as everybody else did because that's not what Christian women do. Don't adorn yourself with all of these things that are going to draw attraction to your physical beauty to make yourself desirable as a temptress to other men, but instead adorn yourself in a way that brings glory to God. So was, was this a term that, that they actually, they had a term for this type of a woman, or is this something historians have mapped, mapped onto these descriptions of these women? They just came up with a term for her. I don't know if the new Roman woman was something that was used in Roman times or if that's how historians have designated this cultural shift. But they definitely recognized the, the, the advent of this concept. And, right. And it, yeah, it, I just, it's, to me it seems like something maybe a historian right. lit upon and said, let's, let's call this idea the new Roman. It, and it may have been that, but it is definitely an idea that exists within the culture that was recognized by the Romans. It was something that they celebrated and encouraged and had become part of who they were. And so <clears throat> there's this very clear expectation, teaching, however you want to frame it, that Christian women should look different. Because, not because they are being dominated or ruled or controlled, by the men in the congregation, but because they should desire to live out their Christian faith in a way that looks different from the way that the Romans do. So in the same way that the men were expected to pray for whoever was the ruler, regardless of what they thought about him, the women were to join in this living out the Christian life, regardless of their own sinful temptation, to overthrow whatever... Uh, rules had they felt like had been placed upon them previously within their culture. And note, these are Roman expectations, not Christian expectations. Because in what was, in the same way that praying for the emperor was unexpected for Christians, what becomes unexpected for Christians when it comes to women is women actually end up with a lot of liberation and freedom and safety within the Christian church that had previously been unknown to women of any kind of cultural background. And the Christian church, beginning from this time forward, begins to change the conversation around what are women able to do and how are they to be treated within the broader culture? Because they are no longer subservient second-class citizens, but they are of equal value, saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ in the same way that their husbands are. That's an awful lot of background that, that people would not necessarily have approaching this passage. And so I, I, I think it deserves a lot of explanation. Right, and we could spend a lot of time just talking our way through this. So that being said, it's important to note that Paul is not eliminating the differences between men and women. So where you can go wrong is taking this too far and destroying the biblical view of male and femaleness 
for the sake of what culture is pushing as in arguing that there is no difference between men and women. And so those two views or those two trains of thought are known as an egalitarian view and a complementarian view. So an egalitarian view of men and women argues that men and women have no functional difference between them, that they are not equal but the same in all ways. And we need to keep in mind that there is a difference between equal in value and same in form and function. Culturally, where we are at now is the broad American culture or Western culture is pushing for an egalitarian view of men and women, that there is no functional difference between them. They are the same. They are completely interchangeable. It does not matter if it is a man or a woman. It is the same either way. And this, to a degree, was being introduced in Roman times as well. It has not, it had variations that we would not find in our culture today. So this, this new Roman woman concept is, is rooted in that as well. Right, in this sameness of, of sexual liberty, of um, being able to have self-determination over your, what you are doing with your body for the sake of pleasure. The biblical view of male and female is what we would call a complementarian view. Complementarian view says men and women are equal in value and equal in standing before God, but they are not the same. That male and female are created differently for different purposes. Now it's important to emphasize here that this does this difference does not determine a difference in value. In many cases, it also doesn't determine a difference in skill. It simply says there is a difference between men and women and the purpose for which they are um, brought together, and that is to complement one another. So you bring together a man and woman in an egalitarian relationship. They are interchangeable. You could change out the man for a woman and the woman for a man, and it should not make a difference in the egalitarian um, way of thinking. Complementarian says, no, there is a difference. You cannot change the male for the female or the female for the male because God has designed them with different purposes in mind. Well, creation, creation and biology tell us that. Right. And you, and you celebrate those biological differences as opposed to work to try and cover them up or hide them away or negate the differences that they have. And so when we look at this one within the family, we would say that every child has a right to have a mother and a father because a mother and a father do different things within the parent-child relationship. In the church, those differences are not hidden, but they are celebrated. And this was very unique and unheard of when the Christian church began to do this. And what Paul is getting at here 
is that just as husbands and wives have different roles to play that complement each other in the marriage, this is a reflection of what is happening in the church. And so if we think about Ephesians chapter 5, which, by the way, is the congregation that Timothy is serving as a pastor. So we have to put this in context of the letter that Paul writes to the congregation. He says, for what purpose is a marriage designed? To show the relationship between Christ and the church. So what do we learn about when we try and answer this question? So what is he saying about women and teaching in the church and having authority over men? Well, we have to look at it in context of Ephesians chapter 5 because you always use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And what we learn from Ephesians chapter 5 is that men are to model Christ through their sacrifice and women are to model the church through their submission. And this, so if we're going to look at the submission, um, let a woman learn quietly in all submissiveness, we have to ask if the submissiveness that he is speaking about is the same submissiveness in Ephesians chapter 5, what do we learn there? That submissiveness is supposed to model the church. Well, how is the church submissive to Christ? Then we get our answer. Mm-hmm. And so how is the church submissive to Christ? Well, when you come to church as the church, what do you do with your relationship to Christ? You recognize the sacrifice that he's made, and you allow that sacrifice to stand. What I mean by that is you don't come to church as part of the bride of Christ, as part of the church, and say, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess to you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishments. But you know what? I'm going to figure it out on my own. I've got a better way. That whole death on the cross thing, that was nice and all, but I think I have found a better way to do it. And so, thanks for trying, God. I'm going to do it my own way. That would be a rejection of the submission, a rejection of the sacrifice that Christ has made. If somebody, if I stood up on Sunday morning and said, hey, everyone, that's nice that you've repented. That whole cross thing, we're not going to worry about that. I want you each to figure out a way to make it right with God on your own. I would hope you would all look at me and say, that is ridiculous. Give us God's words of forgiveness. Because listening to those words of forgiveness, allowing your faith to grab hold to the gifts that those that forgiveness gives, That is submission at work. It's allowing the sacrifice to stand. When we talk about this in the context of marriage, the example I like to use is when you are folding towels at home, do you fold them in thirds or quarters? Well, that makes a big difference for some people. And so to make the point of this, I try and choose the most ridiculous example I can. So let's say... Husband gets home early from work. He notices there's a load of towels to be folded, and he folds them into quarters. When his wife gets home, does she look at the the pile of folded towels and go, that is ridiculous. How stupid can you be? You know that we don't ever fold them into quarters. We fold them into thirds because I like the way it looks better, and it fits into the cupboard better, and all of these things. I should, don't even bother trying to do it. It just takes more time for me to have to unfold and redo what you did wrong. Or does she recognize that he took the time to fold the towels and say, thank you for folding the towels. 
and let the sacrifice stand. I get this is a an example based on some terrible stereotypes. No, but no, I'm but proving it's, a but point. It's very illustrative of of it can go both directions. Right. Yeah. So, for the sake of the sacrifice, the husband should desire to do it correctly. For the sake of submission, the sacrifice, even if not done as the way that she would have wanted, should be allowed to stand. Because this is what the relationship between Christ and the church is trying to tell us. The church does not come and reject the sacrifice of Christ and say, this is how you could have done it better. It allows the sacrifice to stand, even if she doesn't understand why the sacrifice had to be Christ on the cross. And so when we look at this section, we have a rejection of the cultural expectation of dressing for sexual promiscuity and instead an embracing of the submissiveness. Let a woman learn quietly in all submissiveness, letting the sacrifice of Christ and his representatives, his pastors, stand in the presence. I do not permit a woman to teach and to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet because the office of holy ministry is Christ's presence in the congregation and therefore should reflect Christ in that way. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is the headship argument, that there is something different in the nature of Adam and Eve based on how God has designed them and the reason for which he creates them. If we go into Genesis and look, he creates Adam for a different reason than he creates Eve. Does that mean that Adam is more valuable than Eve? Well, no, absolutely not. They are equal in value, but different in purpose. And then he gets into this line of Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. He's now acknowledging that the reason sin exists in the first place is because the headship of Adam was overthrown. This leads to an interesting conversation. What is the sin that happens in the Garden of Eden? Our first instinct is the whole apple thing, the fruit of the tree of the garden. But the lead up to that bite is all part of that sinful act. Who does Satan talk to when he comes into the garden? The woman. The woman. Who should he have talked to? He should have talked directly have, to Adam. He should have talked directly to Adam because he's challenging a command that God has given. Satan himself overthrows the headship of Adam by making Eve have to defend her faith. Not that she is incapable of doing it, but she should never have been asked to do it in the first place. Her husband should have taken that sacrifice and defended her and the faith that the two of them shared against the one who was trying to destroy it. And he doesn't. And Satan doesn't allow that to happen either. Now, I love Milton in Paradise Lost. He tries to give Adam an escape hatch of him not being there. But there's every indication is Adam is standing right there because Genesis does not say Eve ate of it and then went in search of Adam to give him some too. No, they both take of it and eat. He's standing right there and he doesn't stop it. Now the next line, if 
People have been bothered by what has come before, are particularly bothered by what comes next. She'll be saved through childbearing. This does not mean that in order for a woman to save, she must give birth to a child. It does not mean that at all. Because if it did, it would mean that the issue of um, infertility or singleness would be an act of condemnation. That is not at all what is being say, said here. However, what is being said? How is it that Adam and Eve are eventually saved from their sin? They, they recognize their, their, uh, how they've been broken away from God, mm -hmm. and they, and they um, return to him in, in, in faith. Right. And what becomes the saving thing for them? That they can they're pass this faith on. And their descendant. Mm -hmm. It's Christ. Adam and Eve are saved through childbearing. Eve even recognizes this. The Lord has given me a man. She expects it's going to be Seth that's going to save her. Or um, one, of, one of her sons is going to save her. She doesn't realize it's going to be generations later. But she becomes the first in this long line of women that include Sarah and Elizabeth and um, all the way down to Mary, of these women who give birth to sons in the, under the promise that one day God is going to send a Savior and it's going to come through them. She will see, be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So how are women saved? Through the birth of Christ himself. And so it's Adam, we look at the story of Eve. She is deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Eve will be in heaven, Paul says, because she gave birth to sons who gave birth to sons who gave birth to sons who led to Christ. In that same line, women are saved in the same way if they continue through faith and love and holiness with self-control. Not because of they gave birth to a son, but because they are part of that long line of women who gave birth leading towards the Savior. And if you continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, that salvation is yours as well. Because faith, love, holiness, and self-control allows the sacrifice of that Son, the Son of God, to stand, and it allows that sacrifice to be the thing that saves you from the transgressions that have happened. So what holds these two things together? Both of them deal with cultural issues that, in sorting it all out, cause the Christian to live in some unexpected ways. Not in ways that at all inhibit you from living a full and fruitful life, but it does cause you to live in ways that look different from what people would expect. So, any thoughts? Or, there's a lot of thoughts and questions that come out of this. Um, I will. I will stand by my earlier observation that I think those should have been uh, two separate epistle lessons for for two different days, given especially the, how much background really is necessary in the second part right. to really unpack it. Well, and there's an interesting question about this. Of it comes up. How do you handle it if you if you preach on it? Because on the one hand. It's valuable to be taught because it is so unexpected and it is so countercultural. 
does it work to teach it in a sermon? That becomes a lot stickier, and, pre and preachers are talking about that this week because you don't get a chance for people to push back. In a Bible study, I can let you ask questions. You can get points of clarification. I can respond to the individual struggle of the individuals in front of me. You don't have that same back and forth in a sermon. And so how do you handle this text if you're going to preach on it in a way that honors what is being said in Scripture but also recognizes it runs counter to what culture has been teaching our people. And so how do you handle both of those things at the same time? If done well, could be very successful and in a very impactful sermon. Done poorly could cause all kinds of trauma and tragedy within the congregation as people misunderstand what you're saying and why you're saying it. Clarity and explanation become the rules of the day. So what did you choose for us to focus on hymnody-wise? <laughs> well, fortunately, it's a, it's a hymn with uh, only one stanza. So brevity is, is, uh, is, is going to be our friend here. It's uh, 774 in the prayer section of the hymnal. Um, because the first half of that epistle reading was all about prayer. And so I, I, I perused that section. And um, this one also speaks to the idea of the, our relationships, where we are called the children of God. And um, I thought that was something that kind of tied the, the, tied the two together. Now, this particular hymn, uh, Feed Thy Children, God Most Holy, again, 774, in my mind, I, I always thought of it as a, um, uh, a communion hymn. And maybe, maybe you did too. Yeah, that's where I have heard it sung most frequently. And I think in a lot of hymnals it's categorized that way. But actually when it was published, it was, it was designated as a table prayer. Which seminary recast for me because when we were on choir tour, this is often what we would sing prior to eating meals at a congregation. And so that, that has, has colored it in a different way for me now that, now that I know that that was originally how it was published um, by the, the, the poet Johann Hermann. Um, and what for me has, has pushed it into that category of hearing it as a communion hymn is the tune that it's paired with, which is... Um, um, Schmucke dich in, in German, which is soul adorn yourself with gladness, which is one of our very well-known communion hymns. So the fact that they, they, the, the text is carried by the same tune to me said, yeah, it's, it's communion. This, this tune screams communion, and so it must be a communion hymn, and it's really not. You know, in all of the years I've sang this hymn, I've never realized it's the same tune as soul adorn yourself with gladness. <laughs> well, there it is. Now, now you know. I don't know why. It's not like I don't know that hymn, but I have never put the tune sure. to both texts. Well, and that's probably good because that means that means at the forefront for you is the text and not the music. And maybe that's a maybe that's a, a fault of mine of being a musician is I, I hear the music first and then and then I, mm -hmm. I digest the text afterwards. Um, again, it's a it's a very efficient text. Um, Feed thy children, God most holy, comfort sinners, poor and lowly, 
O thou bread of life from heaven, again, kind of tilts in the direction of, of communion. Bless the food thou here hast given. As these gifts the body nourish, may our souls and graces flourish till with saints in heavenly splendor at thy feast do thanks we render. Um, so you have uh, imagery here of all kinds of different feasts. Literally the, you know, the, the meal prayer, uh, the, the, the physical meals that we consume all the time, the heavenly meals, the bread of life from heaven, uh, as he comes to us in the body and blood. And then that last reference, the, uh, uh, the eternal feast, the heavenly splendor that we will enjoy uh, at, at the end of, of life. So it actually touches all of those different layers of, of, of feasting and being fed. Well, and, and ties in kind of nicely with the, the first article of the creed that we are given everything that we need. Um, and then the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. It all ties that very neatly together in a very efficient way. Yes, very much so. And uh, just, a, just a word about uh, uh, Hermann, the author of the text. He was kind of an important link between the very objective hymns of Luther and then the more personal pietistic hymns of Paul Gerhardt. So he kind of nicely uh, fits in that, in that uh, space between those two because our, the Lutheran hymn texts through, through that span of time became a lot more personal, a little less objective. So this kind of strikes a nice happy medium between those two. The, um, uh, his, his life, just a, f a few words about his life, I thought the most interesting thing was one of his contemporaries dubbed him the Silesian Job. And by that he meant he was from this area of Silesia, which is now in Poland, but he, he was called a Job because he had so many personal tragedies in his life. Within his own family, he was the only one of five children. Uh, he, all his other siblings perished. So he's the only member of his family that, that survived into adulthood. When he reached adulthood himself, he, um, he lost his first wife, having had no children. Um, and then after he married a second time, his marriage basically spanned the time of the Thirty Years' War, which is a very uh, 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 just devastating time, especially for that area of Europe in Silesia. And um, uh, so he lost a lot of uh, fellow parishioners. Um, he, he pastored in that area and, and lost a lot of parishioners, uh, not only to the war and the ravages of the war, but also to the plague, which visited that same area. So he certainly earned that title of being the Silesian Job. And, and yet in the midst of all this tragedy, so many beautiful hymns came out of those kinds mm -hmm. of situations. And this is, is a perfect example of that. So brief as it is, let's, let's sing Feed Thy Children, God Most Holy. Feed thy children, God most holy. Comfort sinners poor and lowly. O thou bread of life from heaven, bless the food thou here hast given. As these gifts thy body 
nourish. May our souls in graces flourish, till with saints in heavenly splendor, at thy feast to thanks we render. So if you were casting about looking for a new new table prayer, this would certainly be a very good choice because it uh, it speaks to all these all these uh, uh, well petitions that we talked for early in, in the uh, in the gospel or uh, the epistle reading um, for this Sunday. It most certainly does. And speaking of prayer, let us pray. O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read Mark, and take them to heart, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.